Hello, everybody. This is another episode of The 414. I'm your host, Thomas Hoven, and today we have another very special guest. This is one of my best friends, Jahan Boyers. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes, thank you for coming on. So, Jahan, I think our relationship today is a testament to the fact that people can... um, People can recover from poor first impressions, and so you're laughing because you're, he already knows what I'm uh, what I'm getting at. And so, Jahan, uh, tell us a, a brief little bit about yourself, real quick. Um, so I'm a junior pre-med student, uh, Fiji. Um, recently, actually got initiated into Sphinx Club, which was a big step for me, and then also triple labbing. So academically it has been a very tough semester yes and, and we're going to get into that but the the key part i want everyone to pick up on so yes jahan is a junior fiji so at the house with me uh one year below and so my freshman year when it was time to start recruiting guys for the class after me fiji 25 that is we had it was so it was still it was still covid time-esque and so they couldn't really come into the house, especially while I was still a freshman. The sophomore year and in the beginning of school, they could. Anyway, so we had a few Zooms to try and get to know guys. And Jahan was one of the fabulous men who popped up on our screen. And we, we met, and I thought, oh, this guy's really cool. And so, and yeah, and he was. And so, lo and behold, he joins the house and. He, you think all things are good until I finally see him in person. I say, hey, what's up, John? And he, I'm not really sure, even acknowledged me and just kind of walked by the first time. Or maybe you did. Maybe I've given you a little more credit. Uh, But, yeah, my heart was broken in that moment. And I thought, man, I really like this kid. What was that about? Yeah, I, I don't know what happened there. Um I know that I was very scared those first few days here. Um, I think I was a lot in my head in terms of just really just focused on uh, not messing up. And then by doing that, I actually messed up big time. First impressions are everything. And so it's good that we have this great relationship now, but I did make a very big mistake there. The first time I actually remember interacting with you, it was, I think you were with, uh, you were with Bill and... I just remember seeing you, and I thought, man, this I, I've never met this guy before except for during that Zoom, and he seems way different right now. And I think that was strictly just because I think we were all tired, mm. and so I thought that you would uh, partake in a illicit substance, and obviously now I know that that's not something you would never do, but at the time, I, I was just like, I don't know if I would want to hang out with this person. Uh, looking back, that was a wild thing for me to think. The and I, I don't know if this contributed to your assessment in that moment, but something that has been an ongoing issue for myself really ever since I was born, maybe not ever since I was, yeah, for as long as I can remember, let's say, is I've had uh, a, I guess, um, a multitude of different skin issues. Um, so I've got a pretty, maybe not severe, but pretty. What's between moderate and severe? Regular? I've got pretty, like, regular eczema, and different parts of my of the skin on my body get really dry. Uh, I also have, fun fact, was diagnosed with dermographism, uh, dermo skin graphism writing, uh, skin writing. And so this one is actually a funny story. I was, like, taking a allergy tests, I guess, at the doctor. And, you know, they put different things on a stick and just poke you with the stick. And I was reacting to everything. And at first they thought, is this kid allergic to everything? And then they realized, no, it's the pokes that are making his skin pop up. So you can, people can actually, like, if you just take a fingernail or something, if you scratch me, um, I'll get hives and they'll kind of bump up. So people would do their names sometimes. Not, not as often anymore. 
But fun fact. But back to the the dry skin, uh, particularly my eyes. You can even look at me right now. You can probably see they get dry and kind of flaky. And since high school, people have seen that and said said to me, "Are you high right now?" And I said, "No, I just have dry skin." And they said, "Oh, okay." But that is the truth, and I've ha- I've had different ointments at times. I have a dermatologist appointment coming up, so hopefully I can fix it a little bit. Well, it's it's funny because like I I really feel like we didn't interact a ton during first semester, except for when I was in your room for three weeks and my desk was in there, so I'd study in there. And I remember like talking with you a few times, but I always got the impression that you were just a little bit more quiet, like myself. And so I remember, though, you sitting me down after I'd gotten initiated as a brother, and you were like, I hope you know that, uh, actually, I really like you, and that uh, I was one of the bigger advocates for you to get you and to allow you to become a pledge at this house. And I was like, man, I just never really known that, because I had always heard Solomon was the guy that had always talked about me more, and... Salo was a very interesting person in terms of the way that he showed that he liked you. <laughs> and so it's just, it, it was good to hear that because I think it allowed me to feel a lot more open when talking with you. Nice. I, I never realized that. And I do agree that in general, we probably have similar personalities of uh, the, at least for myself, I think I describe it as what you have. Um, extroverted introverts and introverted extroverts. And so I describe myself as an extroverted introvert, as in, um, for the most part, people that I know well, I'll, you know, I will be chatting till, till the day ends and I'll be, uh, da, 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 da. but with people I don't know well, and sometimes even with my friends, I'll, I'll just take on a more quiet persona at times. Yeah. 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 Definitely do that a lot too. Gotcha. Okay. So, did you read the article, um, front page of The Bachelor, probably a month or so ago, about the accreditation issue? No, I do not believe I did. So, you may or may not know what I'm talking about. That's okay, because let's explain it to the audience. And so, I actually knew about this issue back in the spring, because my physics professors were on top of it, and so... They, they told me then, and then Benny ran an article earlier this semester. So, accreditation is um, ba- basically, the there's some, I don't know what the company or group is called, but there's some organization that does accreditation for colleges and universities. And to be accredited, basically, from my understanding, just means you're an official college, university, um, so that's important for like your degree, and it also enables you to receive different types of federal funding. So it's a very important deal. When they came, I guess probably earlier last spring, they found that, according to them, Wabash passed 68 of the 69 cri- criteria, yes, requirements to be accredited. So pretty good overall. However, to be accredited, you're going to need to pass each and every requirement. And so this this one that Wabash didn't pass had to do with credit hours and the amount of class that students are actually taking. So at Wabash and I believe at some other liberal arts colleges, each class is one credit, whereas at your Purdue, IU, most other colleges and universities in the country, each class is going to be a different amount of credits depending on the amount of time that you spend in that class, right? Okay. And Wabash actually used to be like that. It was 1970 or 71, my physics professors, again, were telling me we were like that and then changed to this single credit system per class. And so when we were like that, we had classes that were, I think, mostly three and four credit hours. I don't know if we said five for any. But e- either way, we had different, we had classes with different amounts of credit hours. And after converting them, they were all worth the same. And so something since freshman year that I've realized seems a bit problematic is 
a class like physics 111, bio 225, whatever, a class that has a lab. So you've got your three credit hours of actual class time, and then you also have your three hours of the actual lab versus another class that doesn't have a lab is sometimes literally half the amount of time but the same credits. And so the people at Wabash see, like, that is interesting, right? The way the math works out, you need, I want to say 120 is, like, what the, whoever the name of the accreditor organization, that's the amount of credit hours that you're supposed to have to graduate. And Wabash, I believe, claims all classes are four credit hours, and they're saying, no, most of your classes are really three credit hours. Credit hours... Credit hours being literally the, I guess, the definition of credit hour is 50 minutes. And so that makes sense because our Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes are all 50 minutes. That's three credit hours, 150 minutes. Our Tuesday, Thursday classes are 75 minutes times two, 150 minutes, three credit hours. And I bring all this up because of the, I guess, the faculty, uh, they made an appeal And this is not a quote, but what they were saying was along the lines of classes at Wabash are so much harder that these guys are working so much harder and it should still be equivalent to a degree from some state school. And Wabash is hard, don't get me wrong, but I actually think that is a crazy appeal to have making. Now, Keith Owens, he was a Fiji before I and graduated before I got here. So he was a year before the seniors my freshman year. But my freshman year, he gave a chapel talk. And the premise was basically, yeah, Wabash is hard, but there are people working really, really hard at IU and Purdue and everywhere as well. And so when I, I thought of that immediately when I heard about this faculty response because I thought, you know, yeah, we are working really hard at Wabash, but the engineers at Purdue and anyone in college, yeah, like we'll, we'll, we'll just about some maybe less, less difficult degrees, but like if you're in college and you, if you, and you have class, like it's, it's work. And so, yeah, I just, I thought that was an interesting response for Wabash faculty to make. It is, uh, it's it's so much fun when I look at my scheduler and uh, you have three three-hour blocks in the middle of the week just taken up and then you look at what that's worth and it's zero. It it definitely, it's not, it, it makes you wonder why is it that that amount of time really amounts to nothing in terms of like any type of credit whatsoever. Right. And I talked to, uh, I was talking to, uh, Cody Bevelheimer's girlfriend, Rachel, who goes to IU, and she was telling me how she thought it was crazy that for a lab for her, it's like three credit hours or something like that, and that she thinks the way that Wabash does it makes no sense because if there's certain classes you're taking that are taking up more time, it should be worth that amount of time. And honestly, I agree, but it is hard for me to just kind of picture it strictly because I've gone to Wabash for like two and like a quarter years now and it seems so normal to just go to lab and not think about the fact that you're wasting all that time in a lot of ways in terms of any type of credit of course you're learning a lot of things and personally for me I find labs to fly by much quicker than a rhetoric class but it is I think it it almost impacts people that aren't science majors more in terms of that amount of time and how they just think of it as being so much more than it really is but yeah I think that it's kind of comedic in a lot of ways that Wabash College may not be accredited because they're making life harder for their students I think that that's kind of hilarious in its own way and the this is not a doomsday prediction the I think Wabash is going to figure it out and um but I believe for, for your for your next year, there's gonna be there's gonna be some sort of change. They and in that article, they was talking about two options. 
one of which didn't seem very like that's going to be accepted. Uh, that option being, I guess, I don't even know how to explain it. Along the lines of faculty rewriting their syllabi to have like, I think it's like to have more work that's not homework, but that's not in class, which sounds a lot like homework to me, but to count for that extra hour. Um, and so that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so really what it might end up being is we might be changing to a, a truer credit hour system and schedules might be getting changed as well, which one of the nicest things about going to Wabash is that we have this really high school-esque schedule where, barring a few exceptions, you've got 50-minute classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 75-minute classes on Tuesday, Thursday, um, not including labs. but And within that schedule, class is from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., and you have the lunch hour of noon to 1 o'clock off because there's no class ever. And that's so nice for the small campus because we'll organize lunch events or just being able to eat lunch at your fraternity, knowing everyone's going to be there. And um, because, you know, um, I think food is one of the greatest sources of bonding that we have. And so the, the effects of what get changed might be detrimental in a lot of ways to most people. But for guys like yourself who are already taking um, so much more credit hours, than most, you might actually see some benefits. And so along with that, you were talking about being triple labbing right now, I assume, next semester as well? Yes. Yep. And so I just wanted to get some thoughts on that. So we've had Bill and Camden on the pod already, and they were kind of a little bit past their, I guess, grind time in terms of pre-med stuff because now they're both in their med school and just not – well, yeah, honestly, and are kind of coasting t- the rest of Wabash comps, you know, will be difficult and they want to keep their good grades. You, on the other hand, are right in the middle. You've got your triple lab, your very difficult classes. You have to maintain your GPA. So what's that been like? Well, so I think first things, Camden Cooper and William Keeling are probably two of the best examples of what hard work can really earn you at Wabash College. I think they've done a fantastic job of just being absolute studs when it comes to the way that they kind of attack their education. Um, For me, I think that the biggest thing that I've really taken away from being in like three labs is that you have to use your time well. You can't waste any time. Biggest thing I do is I try to utilize any time I have during the day as a way to get work done when I get homework assigned. I'm always doing it the day it's assigned. I don't like to leave it for the next day because that means that I'm getting behind on something. It's all about staying on top of things. And when it comes to triple labbing, there's really no time to take a break. Um, Last week was truly my first week where I didn't have a lot of things I had to do. And that was strictly because at 8 a.m. on Monday, I had a 40-minute presentation. And at 9 a.m. that same day, I had a test. And that was the first time where the rest of that week I didn't have a lot I had to do academically. But that that should say something in terms of that was after 10, 11 weeks of just something's always happening. And so I think that the best way to look at triple labs is it's it's like you have five papers that you need to be working on at all times. And they might be different lengths, but their due dates are never the same and you're just constantly turning things in and you have to just constantly be making outlines, making edits. You have to always be prepared for that next assignment while still looking towards the future at that test that's going to be in a week. And so it's it's very taxing, but I think that honestly, if I want to go to med school, med school is going to be harder. And then residency and then being an adult in the real world as a doctor it's never going to be easy, so I can't really dwell on it right now. I like that. I like that analogy to the papers. I think that's a good way for us to think about it. And I think I think you're, you're right with the busyness. And something Camden talks a lot about is that, you know, a lot of your, even 
a lot of your chemistry and even biology that you're learning right now might not be the most applicable to actual medicine. But what he says is when you are in med school, you are so busy. And so it's kind of like a really like a four year weed out process, which is crazy. And, you know, you hear like, oh, if we need so many more doctors, why is it this hard? But at the same time, you don't want an unprepared doctor. Exactly. It's you're learning those good habits now. So then when you are learning more applicable information, you can retain it the same way that you were retaining basic information about the periodic table. Sure. Okay. Moving on a little bit. So your dad was a Fiji, and now you are a Fiji. But your dad went to Hanover, right? Yes. Okay. And so what was what was that Fiji legacy experience coming in and having that relation? What did that mean to you? Well, so my dad is probably the biggest Fiji guy I know in terms of his love for the fraternity. Um, and so I think he had, he never really said it to me, but I know that like the second that he knew that I was going to Wabash or if that had been Purdue or IU, he would have done everything he could to steer me towards Fiji. Um, I think he was very happy when I decided to go to Wabash because he had heard great things about uh, the chapter here. And so I really didn't talk to him much about it in terms of like what my decision was gonna be. But after I had a Zoom call with uh, the guys at this chapter, I realized that these were the type of people I wanted to be around. And when I told him that, I mean, he was beyond excited. But I think the, the coolest thing is that we can just talk and just talk about our own different experiences and really bond over that. Because, I mean, any Fiji chapter in the 90s is different than Fiji chapters now. And so I think it's it's been really fun to talk to him just because, I mean, he was president of his house for two years. So he really had a very different experience, I think, than a lot of people. And so honestly, just bonding over the, the stress of being in a cabinet position or the just basic annoyances of having just dirty roommates. It's it's fun to talk about that, but then also talking about the different traditions that different chapters have. It's very cool. And then to be able to like see him at some of the national events, such as uh, we both attended Fiji Academy, seeing him there and, and talking with him and kind of seeing him being a, a big shot. It always, I mean, as much as I maybe don't tell it to his face. I mean, it makes me super proud. And so I think that that's been another great thing is I think we've both made each other very proud just because of the fact that we both now have this shared experience. That's awesome. And I would like to get to your experience with the stress of being on cabinet. But before that, as you as you mentioned, your dad is quite the big shot in the Phi Gamma Delta National Fraternity. And that is because he is... He's the fraternity's general counsel. Is that that's that, he's our lawyer? Yes, that, for that the, is his position. Yeah, which is just first of all, that's that in itself is quite the responsibility, and so all thanks to him for taking on that role. And uh, to give a to give everyone a bit of an understanding about Fiji at the moment. So Fiji has moved away from the traditional pledge ship, which it's predicted that most fraternities across the nation will be doing so. Uh, basically, insurance said we are, I don't know, quadrupling the cost of insurance if you guys do not do this. So not much of an option. And so your, your dad was one of the champions of really getting us there and has made a big impact. And so I want to talk about that a little bit and when it when it comes to pledge ship and what that looks like i think for the most part people can agree that whether it's forced alcohol consumption or beating kids that hazing is bad now and this is where uh, I just like sharing my opinions. The 
what life used to look like at the Wabash Fiji house, the side chapter, is that freshmen did all of the cleaning. And under some definitions of hazing, under the definition of something that um, freshmen or the, the new group has to do that not everyone else has to do is hazing, that would be hazing. And I understand that, and that's not our system anymore, luckily. Well, I don't know about I'm not. I don't know if I argue luckily, but I guess legally, luckily. So I'm, but you know, m- most of the house, having been through that old system, wishes it was back. And we make different arguments, like, like when you go out into the world and you get your first job, you are at the bottom of the totem pole, and there are things that you have to do to prove your worth and show that you care. And that's that's what a lot of guys say. And I actually bring this up to see maybe if it does sound silly, if if um, if lamenting the loss of stuff like that is silly. And so I was scrolling through TikTok the other day, as I do, and Andre Iguodala, uh, I think, has his podcast, his own, or appears on others. I believe he has his own. Andre Iguodala, great basketball player. Uh, perhaps most well-known for the Max Kellerman meme. Uh, if the Martians have the death beam pointing down at Earth and they got uh, someone on the Warriors to take a three. I want Iguodala. Anyway, he and a couple other of either current or former NBA players were talking about how rookies used to have to do all this stuff, like take laundry to people on road games across like four different buildings of the hotel, Stuff like that. And Andre Iguodala, the the clip cut off right after he asked the question. But he asked, is taking that away bad for basketball? And I thought, that is an insane thing because I see zero connection between between silly little um, quote-unquote hazing tasks of NBA rookies and basketball as a whole. And right when I thought that, I thought, oh my gosh, that's what these people who are telling us that you don't need to be doing that to create a brotherhood. That's what they think about fraternities. Yeah, no, I I look at that, and so my first thought is when we look at how fraternities started, they were very much based on a process where people were invited in based off of current brothers' interactions with them, and they were invited. It wasn't until really you got through some situations like World War One and World War Two, where the whole idea of earning it became a very important part of fraternities. And so I think that... Well, and that earning it became a part because... Because of those types of almost pledgeship type things that people had to go through, like boot camp, those types of things that were very tough. And it was you needed to kind of show your... You had to earn your place. Right, and the... To, to explicitly say, after after those wars, um, soldiers would come back and use their GI bills and go to college. So now they were literally the ones bringing in that boot camp-like atmosphere to pledge it. Exactly. And so I think that the biggest reason why now, when we, especially at like the Fiji house, where we're really the only ones that have to deal with this kind of process right now, I think it, it's... It seems a lot harder for us, and it's like, oh, this isn't fair. But I think that, I think what we forget is that we're just kind of at a disadvantage now in that type of way, where we don't have maybe a process that can really determine if someone cares about our house or if they just want to join a fraternity and they want to join one where it's a little bit, it might be a little bit quicker to become a brother. That is where we kind of struggle right now is determining how can you really define if someone cares. And so especially when we can't go through a similar process back when fraternities started where you could really get to know someone before you actively invited them in because now we're competing with nine other fraternities on this campus that can actively tell someone we're fully invested in you by giving them a bid Versus us, where 
if we really wanted to fully get to know someone, we would need to wait to give them a bid until much later. And so I think that that's where it's maybe a little bit harder for us. And I think that there's definitely some benefits to the more sillier side of those types of bonding experiences. Um, I think that where maybe Wabash is so much different from those big state schools is our campus literally has a like campus-wide sponsored, I mean, by definition, hazing event with chapelsing and homecoming in general, where it's designed for mainly freshmen to participate in a competition sense. But it's it's set there for freshmen, for new students. And so I think it's, it's incredibly hard for a school like Wabash to move away from that when it's it's so important to what makes us different. And so I think that as long as we maybe don't lose those traditions and keep what makes Wabash the special place it is, then we can still move forward with maybe losing pledgeship at different fraternities. But it's definitely a very hard process to kind of untangle. For sure. And going back to what you're saying about how it can be difficult for us now to assess how much an incoming freshman or new member cares about the house, you're right. And I think what that does, though, is it gives us this opportunity to, no matter no matter how much they care coming in, because that's the one thing, like, how much is someone really going to care about anything when they're brand new to it, right? Like, you can say, yes, I have this commitment, but you you see at fraternities with pledgeship people dropping all the time. And so I don't know I don't know that the level of care necessarily is variable based on pledgeship or not. Uh, yes, you can much more easily get someone out of your house with the pledgeship process. I'm not arguing that. But I think when it comes to care, the the job is to make somebody care. And yes, a lot of times the purpose of pledgeship, or at least the proclaimed purpose, because I don't know that they always coincide, but the purpose is bringing you together with a group of guys and making you care about them, which makes you care about the house. Now, I, I think it's very doable to instill this sense of caring in new members without pledgeship, and I think we did a really good job of that this semester. Yes. No, I, I've enjoyed all of the freshmen. I think that they're awesome people, and I definitely think that they have shown that they cared um, just by the way that they actively want to participate in the house and they actively want to make the house a better place. I think it's it's awesome. And I think that one of the most important things that we've done, at least during my time at Fiji, is that I feel like the house is very unified in terms of there's not a lot of class separation. Um, I mean, sure, I would say that most of the guys that I'm close to are the ones that are either one year above me or they're in my own class. But I think that I would be lying if I said I couldn't go up to every single person in the house and have a good conversation with them. And I think that's super important because I think that probably decades earlier, there was no way that that was ever happening. And I'm sure there are probably even other houses on this campus where you could talk to a lot of people and they probably wouldn't have that same type of relationship with their house. Yeah, and I mean, if that's the case, there's not much more that you can ask for, I would say. Yeah. Okay, so as I mentioned probably many, many episodes ago, the Fiji cabinet nationwide, this is like the structure of the cabinet or the executive branch, if you want to call us that, there are five positions, and it goes president, treasurer, recording secretary, corresponding secretary, and historian. And so I mentioned that by chance, uh, what, what I now am doing is shooting up my own ladder of people on my cabinet. So we had Quinn, we had Benny. Now, a couple months later, we'll f- I was finally able to find Jahan with some free time to come on. So you were the recording secretary. And so tell us a bit about your experience and your responsibilities and as you mentioned, 
that you would talk to your dad about the stress of the position? Yeah, so I think I think the best way to describe the recording secretary is that in terms of the two secretary positions, you have the corresponding secretary that's a very external position, and then you have the recording secretary that's very internal to the house. Um, so I'm the one that's taking notes. Uh, in a lot of ways, I'm recording what is occurring in the house throughout my entire time as the recording secretary. I get to set up and host the the much-anticipated room picks each semester. Um, and then I'd say the most important thing that I'm doing is I am filling out our alcohol exemption form where we are getting some educational courses on the, um, I guess, the native effects of alcohol, how to be safe, um, and just general safety that the house can uh, exhibit during uh, stressful situations. And then I turned that into our national organization and very proud to say that I was somehow the first one to turn it in, uh, even I, though I, I remember that. only turned it in a week before it was due. Still blows my mind that no one else had turned it in yet, but I turned that in and we got, um, we're all good there, and so the house is in a very good spot. And then also I'm in the room where it happens. Uh, I think Sam or Quinn must have said that as well, but I think that's one of the bigger things is that when you're in those bottom three positions, really your biggest role is just to be able to be in that room and give your opinions because in the end, most of the stress is really laid on the president, the treasurer. I mean, really, I just want to know, like, how many meetings would you be having with, like, the BCA and other just higher-ups that I really, honestly, I can't say privilege, but did not have to attend how much of that were you and Brett really doing? Not that much. Not really not that much. There every now and then, you know, I get a call from Cam or Detmer, one of our some of our advisors. Um but I I don't know that like official business time wise I really had much more than you with our cabinet meetings. I mean, there's a once-a-week president's meeting with Welch that gets canceled sometimes. And the maybe the main difference is, I would say, you probably knew about most of the meetings that was happening because that were happening because you would be invited. And then you would say, hey, maybe I don't show up for this one. I say, yeah, you're good. And so just in, in terms of like a lot of those, a lot of the ones that, you already knew about, but just didn't necessarily have to attend. Th those were the main ones that, you know, Brett and I just had to be at. And so, yeah, not really not much. And then I guess another question is, I mean, the presentations that are given to us in terms of, at the end of the day, responsibility falls onto you as the president. And so we never had a situation where I think that even was remotely ever going to happen. We did not, thankfully. But... What did it feel like when, because I don't know if there was, like I said, there was never really a situation where you probably thought that, but how did it feel leaving that president position? Did you feel like it was a, a weight lifted off of you? Did you really ever feel that weight of all that responsibility? That is a really good question. And I'll say yes of like definitely having felt it and maybe not in the maybe not in the typical way of of the anxiety fear almost of oh my gosh if someone dies or is severely injured and through some fault of the house that all falls on me i don't that probably not so much which is a good thing because i think i think similar to sports football for example in football they say if you if you play scared, that's how you get hurt. And so I I think it was good that, you know, I wasn't watching around afraid of anything to happen because instead, you know, instead I was doing my best to to mitigate anything like that and luckily it worked out. And, you know, that's not to say that a lot of most not not just a lot, but even most of the things that do happen 
Well, actually, now that I think about it, what I was what I was about to say might not be true. I was gonna say that what gets people in trouble a lot of the time they could not have prevented. I think that might not actually be true because what the and through like the education that you receive, um, not just as president, but like different things that they make all frater- all of our fraternity members go through, the stuff that fraternity presidents get sued for, um, whether it's hazing or breaking rules. So like one of the big ones for Fiji is no um, water, what's the word? Like elements. Yeah, no, no water elements at parties in particular. Um, this is quite relevant because of our Fiji Island party. And so it's just, you cannot have any sort of water, period. And so a lot of times when guys were getting sued, it's because they were breaking that rule and having water present. And so, I don't know if my statute of limitations is up yet, but I'll say, perhaps I did not follow every single rule that there ever was. But also, you know, we weren't hazing kids, and we weren't breaking those big rules that they told us, like, these are the non-negotiables. So that might be a reason that I was never, like, super, oh my gosh, this is going to be so bad if something happens. So, yeah, and I've never thought about it in that way until you just asked that. So I think that's good. Now, for what I was going to say about some some pressures that I did feel, uh, particularly that first semester when we were the cabinet, there were a few issues that I won't describe in detail that uh, were a lot to handle, and some of which had occurred before we took over. And there were, I guess, a couple more that happened soon after we came in, and again, nothing nothing out of this world that was, you know, going to get the house as a whole in trouble. But I, I quickly realized that something I had to come to terms with was I cannot be there at all times. I can't be awake at all times. And, of course, majority of the bad things going on is at 4 a.m. when I'm not really trying to be awake. And so... That was that was one of those just I guess slight anxiety inducing of you know what I'm gonna go to bed and if something happens we'll deal with it um, and so that that weight of being able to go to bed now and not think that if something happens that I'm gonna have to deal with it immediately in the morning that's pretty nice yeah no I was I was gonna say that I think that something you did really well was I think the thing that always bites people in the butt is just they aren't aware of what's happening in their house. And I think you were always, like, on top of things. You always knew, and you tried to have at least some type of hand in the bigger things that could have been risky in terms of whether it was party planning or it was just, I mean, being the head of, like, risk management. Those are all types of things that I think you were very proactive in where I think that it's very easy for someone that's present to just kind of step away from and more just let the actual people that are defined as risk managers take care of that. I think that by you actively, you know, being at the door during a Fiji Island was really good because I think it, it really shows that, hey, the president is stepping up and this entire cabinet should step up and make sure that nothing bad happens. And so I think you did a really good job of that. That's a really good point. And to maybe pat myself on the back a little bit, I think I would say that was something I consciously did. Because the, the thing is, the other four cabinet positions have their laid out rules, um, setting the order of pits to overall external outreach to internal communication to finances. The president doesn't have that, really. The... What, most of what it says is they all report to you. And so it's kind of it's kind of finding that, I guess, balance between um, making sure not only the other cabinet members, but, you know, your committee chairs, risk management, social rush, et cetera, that they're doing what they need to do without you because you can't do everything, nor should you want to or believe you can. Um, but that, you know, I'm I'm not required to spend all this time with a freshman with Pitt that Quinn was. And so how do I use that time to to 
be involved with them in a different way. And I'm not, I think social is a great example of, I, I actually went to some of their meetings, but eventually I wasn't going to every single hour long social meeting about what, how this party was going to turn out. But I was, I would stay in the loop with them, have an idea. And so that when the day came, I knew what the setup was. I knew who, approximately who and how many of people we were expecting. And yeah, yeah. So it, it worked out well. No, I, I vividly remember at Fiji Academy when you came up to all of us and you were just like, so I guess it turns out like I just have like infinite power. <laughs> you were like, I'm in charge of all you guys. And then you guys are in charge of all these things. So really I could, if I really wanted to, just handpick every single thing that happens. And then you're like, I'm not going to do that. But the fact that the president can do that is crazy. It is. And so this is, yes. And so to, to explain to the audience a bit, um, like political science elite-wise, the leader of the House is a president because they're elected by vote of the entire House, full representation there. But power-wise, though, it and it, this this was really revealed at Fiji Academy, as Johan mentioned, it's very dictator-esque in terms of, like, I think the, the example that you were alluding to there was, so you have all your committee chairs, right, who they're not on this executive cabinets, but very prominent roles in the house and we've kind of had a weird we've had a weird some of them have been appointed some of them have been voted on um and flip-flopped back and forth throughout the time in the house but the the interesting thing is according to nationals the not the cabinet but the president is supposed to just straight up pick every single one of those um which again we did not do but yeah the 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 fact that that is how they say it should work is is crazy but also going back to the risk management with it all falling on that one person i would say in that sense if if it's going to all be on him then maybe it is fair that he gets to have such a heavy hand in what what that makeup is it's truly a, a give and take type of thing where i mean you're right you have all that risk you might as well be the one that's making those decisions that then probably will end up helping you or hurting you. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So with Fiji, it's probably partially with your relationship to your dad, but not all of that because it's also you have it with a Wabash, and the listeners probably got a sense of that when you're talking about the origin of pledgeship and fraternities. Jahan, you have this just vast historical knowledge of Fiji and Wabash and the way fraternities work in general. And I think it's really cool. And I'm wondering what, what drives you to have such information in your mind? Um, I think the big motivation for me is the things that I really care about, I want to learn more about. And so if I just read something here or there, like I remember the first time I really thought about learning about Wabash's history was in one of the bachelors I read freshman year, it had like a archived article in there. And I just thought, even though the information was very basic, I just thought that's, that's really cool that they have this. And then I found that there were yearbooks. They're just like out in the open for people to read um, from all the way back in the early 1900s. And I just, I find those types of things so cool because I love learning about what led to this place being the way it is. And so when reading about the different types of traditions that used to exist at Wabash and learning about why those things went away, like learning about the, the famous freshman-sophomore brawl that would always happen and that Wabash made it all the way to the front page of the New York Times because of how badly one of those brawls went. I think that that is fantastic to read because I think it's fascinating that Wabash College has just always been different. The fact that a school just has their freshmen and sophomores just fight is hilarious. Or just recent history, the fact that the W in, I think it was 2013, was bad. 
If you got a mm. W, that's a bad thing. That means you've messed up. And then for it to then switch to being a good thing the next year, I think is fascinating in terms of how Wabash College has all these traditions and how when I got here, I never would have thought that a W would have been bad. I would have thought it would mean only good things. And so I think it, it really shows how Wabash College is, is stark in traditions, both old and new. And so I think that's always been something where I want to learn more about these traditions. And so that's why I always find myself just doing all this research when I have free time because, honestly, it just it makes me happy. So, Yeah, I like that. And the, the, the W being bad, being good, it speaks to this evolving tradition that we have because a lot of us at Wabash like to just um, – say the word tradition and wear that on our sleeves and it it really is like yes there there are some traditions that have stood since the inception of Wabash from the liberal arts school to the all-male aspects to the though I was giving us a bit of a flag at the beginning the academic rigor and the brotherhood that's fostered and stuff like that some other things that people covet as well whether it's the W or so, so my dad went to Wabash and yet, and he, he was the one telling me, yeah, the W, you didn't want to get a W in my day. And there's, there's another tradition that is relatively new. So there's this arch on campus that uh, you do not walk under until commencement because the, the saying goes, it's bad luck and you will not pass your senior comprehensive exams if you do and that that was never a thing for dad and I don't know when that one started that one that one might have been this century if not 1990 well it would have had to be since dad graduated 89 um, so yeah they, that one as well not the newest thing ever no I, I I think and this just popped in my head but I remember freshman year there was a basketball game a lot of people were there and someone took a picture and posted it onto the, the fantastic app of Yik Yak. And they were like, I can't believe this guy's doing it. It was, it was an older guy. I want to say he might have been in the Sphinx Club. And he was just standing smack dab on the middle of the W in the Allen Center. And I thought at the time, I was like, man, I guess just no respect for tradition. But when I think about it, it's, I think it more points to the fact that just I'm blindly told that you don't step on that W because tradition says so, but then... But the Allen Center was built in 2001. And so then it's like, how can you blame someone for doing something where they probably love this college just as much as I do, and I'm sure they would never want to break any type of tradition, but if that wasn't a tradition for them, how can we fault them for then not participating in it when it's, you know, 30, 40 years later? And so I think that... That's one of the most interesting things about tradition at Wabash College is just how kind of, like, you can kind of pick and choose what traditions you truly follow because I know that chapel saying 30 years ago, everyone was on the steps. They were all linked up. It was very physical, and, you know, you're getting a W shaved onto your head if you mess up, and it's, I mean, that seems pretty radical to me in terms of, just what we do now where everyone's lined up. And, I mean, we've seen how those types of things can go when it comes to guarding the chapel during chapel sing. So I think it's very fascinating because I think that a lot of the older alums, as much as we may get mad at them for not respecting tradition, they probably look at us and they think that, man, it's it's gotten a lot softer probably to them. I remember sitting outside the, the senior bench. It was me and one other person. And then an alumni came up to me, and he was just like, is it just you two guarding right now? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, back in my day, you two would have been tied up in barbed wire <laughs> if there were only two people guarding the bench. And I was just kind of, like, confused and just like, well, that's a wild thing to say. But then looking back, it's like he must have looked at us and thought we were just, just like, two weak freshmen because things have changed so much yet the idea of tradition is still there. I would like to know what, what drew you to Wabash College because, of course, you've talked about your father, and he did come to Wabash College, but I know that he was not a Fiji, 
And so I think that it would be really cool to know how much of an impact he had on you going to Wabash. And then what was that drive that sent you towards Phi Gamma Delta? Yeah, this is a fun story. So in my college discernment process, I decided I'd I, I decided, though it would be fun to go to some school in California and experience an extravagantly different life, and I think I would have excelled there, or somewhere, somewhere far away, that I decided, you know, I don't want to be too far from home, partially for the, I guess, logical rationale that I'm not super big fan of, like, spending lots of time on travel and I'm not talking about traveling to Europe and stuff like that that we've talked about on the podcast. I'm talking about long car drives or just going to the flight to come do it going to the airport to fly home. The just I I'd rather do other things and so I live a little over an hour away from home which is has been convenient. And so yeah, I decided I didn't want to go too far away and I ended up applying to a multitude of schools but the ones I was really looking at were Wabash, IU, Notre Dame and Butler. And yeah, so dad, dad went to Wabash and I remember my, probably the beginning of my junior year of high school, he said, Hey, what do you, what do you think about Wabash? And I thought, you crazy? The, you know, the, what about everyone says when you heard, when you first hear about an all-male school of 800 in Crawfordsville, you think no chance. Um, but I knew there was good academics here. Uh, and I, and I thought there's a chance I'd be able to run track. So I, I took the visit, spring of of that junior year, and that that first visit, just the the brotherhood that they talked about and that I saw, I I immediately fell in love, which is another thing a lot of guys say at their first visit they, that's it. And I went back to I went back to school. Um, I don't know if I had a class that. I, May or may not have had class after the visit, but I remember having track practice with my track coach who also attended here, who's a fight help. And I said, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to Wabash. And here we are. And so, yeah, I mean, Dad Dad did his best to not influence me too heavily, uh, you know, make my own decision. Uh, but it's kind of funny that once I was here already, he threw that philosophy out the door and was very much trying to get Nate to come here. Uh, which also also worked out. So yeah, the Wabash is it. The I guess the, the pretty classic story of not, no chance to you come, you fall in love, and here you are. As you mentioned, Dad was not a Fiji. Dad was a Beta, and my Scarlet Honors weekend, December of my senior year. Dad half jokingly said, "Yeah, you know, join a house, don't join a house." But whatever you do, don't join Fiji. And I I think he said that. I don't even know if he remembers it. But I think he said that because Fiji used to have this reputation of being an, an all-white, stuck-up kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, da, 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 da. Like arrogant, preppy. Preppy, yes. Um, that was kind of the vibe. And... I, I guess that was what Dad thought at the time, but he 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 understood that you know houses and cultures change, but that's what he said. And so so I got here. I remember him saying that, but didn't really didn't really pay it any mind. And as we mentioned before, Fiji had this academic reputation, so that was a big reason why I wanted to look there. And it, it took me a while because though Wabash is pretty small, like a five-minute walk across the diameter of campus if you're walking at a decent pace. Um, I just, that that first overnight, so there's there's like three-ish sections of the fratern- of the 10 fraternities. There's the west side with five. There's the east side with three of us. That's where Fiji is. And then there's two more, one kind of on the east side and one really off on its own. And I just couldn't navigate to Fiji didn't have a map I, with me, I guess. And it was, I eventually made it, though. And I think I've talked on the podcast before about how guys, especially at Wabash, should choose a fraternity. Um, they should choose the one where they feel the most comfortable and can see themselves 
really fitting in and being part of the brotherhood, and that's what Fiji was for me. Yeah. No, I I fully agree with the fitting in part. I think that that's why each fraternity kind of has its own personalities because it gets the right type of people to fit in there. So, no, I like that, though. It's exactly the same for me in terms of coming to Wabash. I, I went to a few camps here. I uh, Actually, my camp counselor at a wrestling camp was the four-time national champ, Riley LaFever. yeah. And so I was like, that's pretty cool. That's Yeah, it's awesome. But I also was just kind of like, man, it seems like a sports school, and I don't think I'm ever going to really do athletics in college. Um, so I don't think I'll ever come here. And then I visited with my mom, um, and they just talked about the long-term benefits of coming to Wabash College, and then I talked with some professors. And then my mom kind of looked at me, and she was just like, you know you're going to come here, right? And then I was like, gosh darn it, you're right. <laughs> but that's that's kind of how it works, and that's why I love this place, is that it really it, it surprises you in terms of how well it can just make you into a better person. So, yeah. I completely agree. Well, with that, I think that's all the questions I have. Uh, thank you, Jahan, for finally making it on. And thank you for having me. Of course. And uh, we will see you guys next time.